0: Hey, my name is Jijun. Reading the scripture again. Sorry. <laughs> if you don't like, don't like my voice, put up with it. <laughs> again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Oh, Isaiah 7, 10, 10 to 17, and 9, to, 9 1 to 7. Again, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep. Let it be deep as show, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. (coughs) But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he had he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, G- Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy as the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. <coughs> oh, sorry.
1: <laughs> uh, no, you're good. Hello. Hello. How are we? <laughs> awesome. Okay sounds about normal uh it's good to hear so uh okay i got normal that i would mess with the stand forever too that's good to hear um i'm gonna try to this is new isn't it this is our new stand um cool what are the uh anyway okay (laughs) so i could i'm supposed to use this one right okay anyway (laughs) awesome okay well we'll work that out next time that's been the kind of day it is so we have to bear with me how are we we're we, we doing okay overall okay okay so anyway um i'll skip my little jokes about self-selecting groundhog day and we'll just move into the actual uh, who i am and what i'm up to um so my name is sid drew and i'm the campus minister for RUL reformed university fellowship it's a christian campus ministry uh, that exists to serve the campus but also you all And we mean that, like, whoever you are and wherever you're from. And we want to take that very seriously. We don't want to be a ministry for one kind of person. We want to be a ministry that serves every kind of person. Uh, No matter what your personal background is, no matter what your campus scene is, um, we want to be able to serve you and for you to feel welcomed here. And we mean that even spiritually, whether you're not sure where you are with Jesus or you're fairly sure in either direction. We're so glad you're here. We hope you feel welcomed. And, uh... I hope to get to know you if I don't, haven't met you. I think if this is your first time, I'd love to meet you. Maddie, would you raise your hand? There's an intern. Eric, another intern on the same side. That's, I think that's a first. Um, they'd love to meet you too. Um, and any of these students also would love to meet you. And there's also finally snacks in the back. The pizza came, so please, second, second supper. Uh, you would not be a hobbit if you did not do two dinners. So um, we'll encourage that. <laughs> So everyone wants to be a hobbit in life. Okay, so this semester in large group, we are looking at the book of Isaiah in the Bible, and we're looking at the topic of who God is. As a reminder, studying Isaiah is worth the time and energy for two main reasons. First, Isaiah pictures God like no other. And these pictures tell us, they lead us uh, to ask a question about God, and really about ourselves. Are we really sure we know who God is? Are we really sure we know who God is. And second, the same images of God's character and his characteristics are so important, especially when our lives explode. You know, whether that's kind of over-the-top happiness or life-altering suffering or the obvious lack of anything that bears a resemblance to, to exciting. No matter where we are, that's sort of, uh, this is a really helpful grounding point or anchor. And really, the idea is that when we don't know what God is doing, when we can't trace his hand, we trust his heart. We get to trace who he is at his character level, which is unchangeable. And that's really what we're up to. And so the first week, we looked at Isaiah 1 and 2, and that God is near and big, that is, he cares and he's powerful. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 6, and we looked at how God is holy. And tonight we're going to look together at how at Isaiah seven and nine, and we're looking at how God is trustworthy. He's trustworthy, okay. But before we do that and go there, can you pray with me, Father? Um, there's a lot uh, in this passage, a lot that I've been mulling over. A lot of these students have been going through, and I've been going through. Um, I glossed over it in the intro, but this weekend was big for a lot of people. Uh, feelings of being included, feelings of being left out. Uh, it sounds like classes have kicked into a high gear and the stress maybe is starting to creep Um, and the feelings of I can't read every page nor should I try um, are kicking in um, and really just can I survive and I pray that you be with the students wherever they are um, uh, with these problems but also with you and be with me (coughs) and help us to um, to be still enough for the next couple minutes next several minutes that you could draw near to us. We pray that you would draw near, Jesus, and that you would affect us, uh, that maybe for some of us uh, you would comfort us, and for some of us you'd shake us up. We ask this, um, and we ask that you'd be present, Jesus, and that you'd be high and lifted up to the eyes of our hearts, and you'd be more beautiful and believable uh, than you were when we entered this room to us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So I've been reading this memoir, uh, When Breath Becomes Air. Um, And I'm going to try not to butcher his name. But it's about a world-class neurosurgeon, Paul Kalanithi. And he contracts stage four cancer, lung cancer. And he dies at the age of 37. And before you judge me in this talk already and go, he's so morbid, he's so dark, he's so tragic, he's such a type four in the Enneagram, Um, (laughs) before you do all those things. I would like to say that the book is beautiful, it's well written, um, it is honest, it's a really great look. He's really concerned about the deep questions about the meaning of life. And it's all kind of viewed through the lens of somebody who really is thinking about life through a medical lens, through, as a neurosurgeon. And Paul Kalanithi, is, he writes about his very first patient on his first rotation as a medical student in med school. Uh, for some of you, this is going to be a real reality very soon. A woman he calls Elena is having twins, and she's contracting, and she's about to give birth to these twins, but it's way too early. They're very premature. The twins are 23 and a half weeks old. That's a half a week from kind of being out of the womb and being viable or able to live with a good chance. And so Paul um, is kind of monitoring Elena, and he gets curious, and he starts kind of asking questions about the squiggles and the twins' heart monitor to the attending nurse and the nurse starts talking to him about it and then she takes one look at a particular pattern and then she panics. She picks up the phone and calls the attending doctor. After an emergency C-section on Elena to rescue very premature twins, Paul describes these twins taken out of the womb this way. Two purple babies, barely moving, eyes fused shut like tiny birds fallen too soon from a nest. And sadly, both of those twins die within 48 hours of their birth. And that's his first medical school rotation. First patient. It starts off intense, right? And later, Paul follows up on the twins and asks the attending physician, a woman named Melissa, he asks her, was it the right choice to do the emergency C-section? Melissa replies, no question. It was the only shot they had. But Paul, being curious, presses the issue. But how do you know when the heart tracing looks bad enough? Which is worse, being born too early or waiting too long to deliver? To this, Melissa coolly replies, looking up from the television that she's watching, judgment call. How do you know when to, when to take out the kids? Judgment call. And this response kind of sends Paul into a mental and emotional tailspin. And he realizes that he has been called on, he will be called on as a doctor to make life and death decisions all of the time for the rest of his life. And he kind of says it this way. What a call to make. Surely intelligence wasn't enough. Moral clarity was needed as well. Somehow I had to believe I would gain not just knowledge but wisdom too. He realizes that his profession's gonna require moral, emotional, and mental, and physical perfection, right? He's gonna focus on neurosurgery, the hardest of the hard, the demands all the more. He's gonna require that kind of high-level perfection in every sphere, but the more he practices neurosurgery, the more he realizes that he has mistakes to own, mistakes in judgment about whether to operate at all on a person and their brain. He's making, he has failures in empathy. Sometimes he ignores a person's pain. Sometimes instead, he doesn't consider a patient's worries. In his defense, over and over again, you can tell that the kind of life that a neurosurgeon resident lives is just grueling. No sleep, ridiculous hours. And, you know, every decision he makes as a neurosurgeon resident is high stakes. It's life or death. Quality of life issue is always the issue. And so he's bound to make mistakes, he's bound to fail, but he wrestles out loud with not just how does he make better decisions, like how can I make better decisions, but also with whether he can live with the consequences of his own bad decisions. And that's actually where King Ahaz is in chapter seven. He would have understood Paul Kalanathi, Ahaz would have gotten exactly what Paul is describing about medicine's high stakes. It's decision making, life and death decision making. You see, the prophet Isaiah comes to King Ahaz in chapter 7 in the midst of a huge decision. Outside of the, it was roughly 735 BC, and the ultra violent war machine of Assyria is idling just outside the borders of Judah, the southern kingdom of ancient Israel. And Assyria, this is about to steamroll. Ahaz, his kingdom, and all the kingdoms nearby. But then to make matters worse for Ahaz, his neighbors to the north, Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, and even farther north, Syria, make a military alliance with each other. And they basically say, you got to join us, Ahaz, to fight against Assyria, or we're going to go ahead and invade you. So he is in a lot of stress. <laughs> and King Ahaz is in this like, classic rock-in-a-hard place, you know, like the catch-22, the lose-lose. Like, you can't make a good decision, it feels like. And some of you feel like you're in the grips of that moment, of one really hard decision or many hard decisions. Um, and, you know, again, it's probably not life or death, but you still feel stuck, and honestly, you're a bit scared or angry. Or you see the future coming, you know, graduation. <laughs> shifting friend groups who to live with next whether to take that romantic risk and like Paul Kalanithi or King Ahaz you and I want to know we want to know this how do I make better decisions okay does God does life require moral emotional and mental perfection can I live with my consequences of bad decisions I make How do I, in my limitedness, right, in my fallibility, how do I live in a world filled with cancer and premature births and Assyria and my mistakes and personal failures? Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17, and chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, speak to these big life questions that we all have kind of rattling inside. Isaiah points to God and he shows just how God is trustworthy in the midst of these decisions. God is trustworthy. He means and he keeps his promises. So we can rely on these promised words. So God is trustworthy. He means and he keeps his promises. So we can rely on these promised words. And we can use these words to decide our present and plan for the future. That's kind of my basic thesis. I'm, we're, I'm saying that God is trustworthy and His promises we can rely on now and then. And Isaiah does this by, in chapter 7 and 9, in the 730s BC, by kind of pitching two scenes for us. So we're going to look at scene one and we're going to look at scene two. Okay, scene one is Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 17. And scene one shows us the value of trusting in God's human words to make our present tense decisions. And then second scene, Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7, shows us the value of trusting in God's human child to plan for and live with the future. Okay, so that's all in your handout, by the way, if that was confusing. It's all in your handout. So we're going to look at the two blocks of text together and two, just two, two points tonight. I know it's kind of shocking. Some of you are... Oh my gosh, where's the trinity? Um, (laughs) Dual natures of Christ. Dual natures of Christ. Okay. So as usual, these verses and points are in your handout, okay? But also as usual, we're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to start at chapter 7, verse 10, and we're going to move through it. And we're going to look at how God's words are worthy of our trust. So look, just to give you a heads up so you don't, like, just freak out inside, the first point is going to be a lot longer than the second. That's intentional. So um, I will get to the second one. It'll be much shorter. And uh, the second one's really a teaser for next week. So, exciting. Okay. So, in verse 10, look with me there. We're told, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So, again, is a reference back to the verses before our passage tonight, to to Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 9. Since you don't have those before you, I'm just going to summarize them. And here's how it kind of works. Isaiah gets news, or not Isaiah, Ahaz gets news about a military agreement between his neighbors, Okay, so Ephraim, Israel's northern kingdom, okay, and ancient Syria have decided to work together to defeat Assyria, but the problem is that Ahaz and Judah are going to be forced to choose sides. They're going to either have to fight with Ephraim and Syria against Assyria and surely lose, because Assyria is a war machine, or the combined forces of Ephraim and Syria will attack and surely destroy Ahaz and Judah, so therefore, and the, the, the passage before it describes this, Ahaz and the people's hearts are shaking like trees and a strong wind. That's the description. Into this dilemma of a decision, right, comes Isaiah, God's prophet, God's mouthpiece, who speaks the very words of God. And God, through Isaiah, tells King Ahaz, look, be careful. Be careful. Quiet. Do not fear. And and Isaiah, God through Isaiah, proceeds to promise that Ephraim and Syria will both surely be shattered. So look, God is saying to telling Ahaz, it's going to be okay, right? All you have to do is nothing, just rest. And all of us roll our eyes. We hate that advice. Okay, it's so hard. So this advice, be still and know I am God. Ah, it's the worst. It's so very difficult. It's so hard to wait. It's so hard to rest. In general, but especially when we can hear the footsteps of our own anxiety. When anxiety is on the move and on the prowl. We want to fortify. We want to gear up. We want to properly prepare. We want to get her done. We want to out-effort it. (laughs) And this is why God tells Ahaz in verse 11 back to our passage in verse 11 God says ask a sign of the Lord your God let it be as deep as Sheol the underworld and as high as the heavens God is giving Ahaz a blank check he's saying I know what I'm asking is extremely hard and you might need this so essentially he's saying God is going to say to Ahaz and to us what's going to take for you to believe in me What kind of huge miracle, what kind of incontrovertible evidence will it take for you to take me at my word and take my advice? You see, Ahaz, like several of us here tonight, struggles to believe that Isaiah's words were God's words to him, that they were worthy of his trust. He's surrounded by experts who call Isaiah's words impractical or unrealistic they look at resting and relying on God and these experts ask is that a strategy to rely and rest on God like Ephraim and Syria are, are chomping at the bit personal weakness past failures are not going to take care of themselves said Druin look you we need military muscle you need self-improvement a complete change of personality is what it takes college Spring semester, Groundhog Day, New Year, New You, right? That's what we need, okay? And so often the experts of foreign policy, and I'm saying self-help here, can be right. There's some truth there, right? But not when God's Word tells us to do the opposite. So God's Word said, don't worry about Ephraim and Syria, God's word tells us not to fear because success doesn't guarantee and failure doesn't exclude. Success doesn't guarantee and failure doesn't exclude. And Jesus, you can't earn your way there and you can't lose what's most valuable. So really in verse 11, God asked Ahaz a question that we might want to ask the most skeptical parts of ourselves. Look, is there anything that God can do that would make you believe what God says? Is there anything that God can do that would make you believe what God says to that skeptical inner critic? Is it really just a matter of not enough evidence? I mean, for instance, you're gonna see this. There's a lot to be said for the truth of the Bible historically, even in Isaiah. Or is it actually a matter of not wanting to trust Do we secretly despise that spiritual floating feeling, right? We're on our back. It's free, but we feel powerless. In verse 12, Ahaz makes his position clear. He will not quit flailing against God's tide. Thank you very much. That's not his game. He gives what appears to be a very religious and even biblical sounding answer, right? I will not put the Lord to the test good work it has but in the word of alec meyer to demand a sign is in order to believe is to treat god like a performing animal with faith as the sugar lump rewarding the trick but moyer wisely adds to refuse a proffered sign is proof that one does not want to believe and later verses are going to reveal this truth. Ahaz does not want to trust God's promises because he already trusts the promises of Assyria. Ahaz went to Tiglath-Pileser III and Assyria, and he offered to become Assyria's vassal state, to pay tribute. And this regular tax paid for the right to exist, to not be subsumed by the Assyrian empire. So Ahaz continued to be king and Judah can continue to be his kingdom and also paid for the right for Assyria to defend Judah against its neighbors, Ephraim and Syria. And so Ahaz went to Assyria like a frightened shop owner, goes and pays a protection fee to the local mafia muscle. That's what happened in the ancient Near East. Okay, so you see Ahaz trusted Tiglath-Pileser's words, his promise of protection. He trusted it over God's words and God's promises of protection. And perhaps this is because Ahaz just felt more comfortable with doing something conditional, right? He can secure his future by making a payment, right? It gives him something to do and makes that decision based on something he puts forward. It doesn't make it feel so unconditional. Certainly, this was what Ahaz did because Ahaz, like all of us, makes decisions based on who and what he trusts. We all make decisions based on who we want and what we trust. Ahaz trusted strength to make his life work. When his own strength failed, he turned to the strongest person he knew. Tiglath-Peleeser III, and Assyria. Our biggest, most impacting decisions often come down to what we trust. Look, when I look back over my life, it was less about which good college I chose. Because they were all like fine, they were all good, okay? Instead it was like, whose words did I believe about myself? Whose words did I believe about the world? My career, my wife, my closest friends could have been anywhere. But they would have been radically different, and they sometimes were radically different, without living by Scripture. That changes the variables the most. Even though we really want that one answer. And you want God to be a magic eight ball. I get it. Definitely not clear. Okay, so... But notice how God gets our struggle in the passage. Look at verses 13 through 17. God underlines what's so hard about believing words of people like Isaiah. Okay. It's hard to believe that Isaiah's words, people's words, are God's words. That is so hard. It's so hard to trust the Bible because God's words are so very human. What is God made? What God made is human conveyed. And that makes it feel shaky at best for many of us in the room. After Ahaz refuses to trust God in verse 13, God gives him the sign to believe him. Anyway, even though he knows Ahaz won't trust him, God gives him a sign. And at the center of this sign is what feels the most shaky about being human. An infant, a newborn, someone who can't even hold up their own head. That's his sign to trust him. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call him his name Emmanuel, or God with us. In order to get into the why of how this speaks to our doubts, I've got to do a little bit of explaining. And for some of you, you're just dying for this and some of you are dying already about it. Okay? So I'm going to explain some prophecy. Okay? Solve all of our problems about Revelation. Um, No, I'm just kidding. So look in the Old Testament, there are a lot of pro- there 's a lot of prophecies, of course, and there 's things called prophets like Isaiah. but the prophecies in the Old Testament of the Bible, that part there is there 's kind of two fulfillments there 's a partial or near term fulfillment oftentimes, and then there's an ultimate or far future fulfillment. Does that make sense so there's like two stages of fulfillment so in order to and so Simply put, there's going to be two solid interpretations for the more partial near-term fulfillment. I'm going to talk about like the historically near-term fulfillment first, and it's going to feel partial, and I'm going to start there, and it's a little bit complicated. I'm sorry, but we're going to do the hard work here. That's what we do. So, okay, the first solid interpretation is that Isaiah uh, was not being literal about his prophecy until the far future. In this near term, it's very figurative. The virgin mother here represents the nation of Israel, and the son Emmanuel represents the few who still believe in Israel. The faithful few are going to emerge out of a period of labor-like suffering that is induced. See that by the Assyrians. Okay, <laughs> verse seventeen. Isn't that compelling? Okay, second, second interpretation. Isaiah used the Hebrew word for virgin, this word Alma. For a wife of Isaiah's, who was at the time unmarried, and at the time a virgin, at all the time of this prophecy, she was a virgin unmarried, but within the year, she conceived and had a child, and that child is described by Isaiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Those are the two sort of near-term interpretations of this passage, and regardless of which interpretive path you take, within two years, so... If the prophecy is given in 735, by 733, that child is eating solids, okay? That's sort of how it works developmentally. And that child is actively choosing the good or tasty versus the bad or nasty, okay? The age of eating solids, okay? And this historically 733, that time period in that child's life is the same year that Assyria militarily destroys Ephraim and Syria. So much so that only the capital, Samaria, is left unconquered. And 10,000 Israelites are dragged east by giant fish hooks and, and foot chains. So in the faithful few Israelites, it's called the remnant, right? Or that physical child of Israel, of Isaiah, I mean. So like it could be the faithful few remnant or it could be the physical child of Isaiah. Whoever you think the child is, okay? That child must live in a curds and honey poverty. They've got to feed off the land. They can't farm because all the farmland has been destroyed by the Assyrians. All right. In case Ahaz missed the memo of all this, we have verse 17. The Lord will give you what you want. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house, the king of Assyria. (laughs) Boom. Boom. 701, history tells us, Assyria came, knocking, and they destroyed Ahaz Ahaz and Judah. Ahaz at the time was dead, but Judah's killed, devastated, all but devastated. Jerusalem still stands. And Ahaz's trust in Assyria to keep their word and their promise to defend Judah, not to attack Judah, proves to be a very, very poor choice. Why? Because Ahaz chose poorly. the Assyrians were less trustworthy than God okay (laughs) history lesson okay look if you if you're still with me if you if you if you're like me and you're like really frustrated with both these near-term partial fulfillments um, you know like first the one is so poetic it costs the, the historical the second one like the whole sexual virginity miracle thing feels a little diminished Right, It's something like a technicality that she's sort of not quite married and still a version of the time of the prophecy. Probably a lot of them. Okay, so that seems a little bit kind of unsatisfactory. And really, that's actually the point. It's a partial fulfillment. We are awaiting the ultimate fulfillment, the more complete fulfillment, the farther future fulfillment. And really, Isaiah and his contemporaries had to wait 2,735 years, roughly. For that, they had to wait for the Virgin Mary to be overshadowed by God's Holy Spirit to deliver the only virgin-born human being to ever walk this planet, Jesus of Nazareth. The same Jesus who's born into curds and honey poverty, caused by yet another military occupation. The same Jesus of Nazareth who at the age of two, eating solids, traveled curds and honey light, leaving his homeland of another bad king, Ahaz style, but this time Herod, and has to sojourn to Egypt. The same Jesus who is God with us, Emmanuel, in a way that bore our sins unto death and on a cross. Who rose from a grave to be spiritually present with us always into the ends of the earth. A Jesus who has walked our dirty roads. A Jesus who has been to every dark place that we are right now. The novelist Walker Percy gets at just how wild and shocking it is that God uses this Emmanuel child, Jesus, as a sign. He says it this way. Who else but God arranged that love should pitch its tent in the place of excrement? Who else but God Arrange that love should pitch its tent in the place of excrement. Jesus is God, tented, wrapped in human skin. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Jesus is the infinite, limitless, absolutely holy God, knee deep in the steaming muck of our lives. He is knee deep in the steaming muck of our present tense decisions. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. And Jesus, who is born as the most shaky of human newborns, who is subject to medical judgment calls with far less medical training, this Jesus is called the Word of God. And like Jesus, God's words are fully divine and fully human. They are God's thoughts wrapped in human vowels and in human consonants. They are God's infinite, limitless, and absolutely holy words uttered in what John Calvin calls cosmic baby talk. Why? So that we can digest them like two-year-old solids. So that we can trust and live by God's promises, whether those promises are for two years from now or 2,735 years from now. So what Isaiah 7 is predicting here is that our problem with the humanity of the Bible, which all of us deep down probably have a problem with that, is a problem with the humanity of Jesus or should be a problem with the humanity of Jesus. In the words of the Waterdeep song, I really appreciate, it's a band, why did God have to look so human? He was supposed to look like lightning and instead he looked like his mother. (laughs) And really, if I'm honest, my frustrations with trusting God and his word to make better decisions this anger comes from a fear and the fear is that I'm going to screw up my future right I'm going to permanently mess it up and once again Isaiah underscores that fragile feeling by putting all of our permanent futures into the hands of a child (laughs) a child who looks like his mother and so we're finally on to Isaiah 9 verses 1-7 through and my much shorter I promise second point Okay? And so really, verse 1 of chapter 9 shows us immediately that Isaiah's prophecy is set in, in the very midst of Ahaz's failure. You've got to understand this. Ahaz invited the Assyrians to invade Judah and the northern neighbors, and they did so. They invaded Ephraim in 733 BC. The Israelite tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were the most decimated by the Assyrian invasion. And so their gloom, their anguish, their feelings of contempt would have been the worst. But verse 1's prophecy tells us that Ahaz's failure, that our failures don't have the last word. In the latter time, God gives this area of Gilead and Dor in Galilee a glorious reversal. How cool is this? And unlike the 8th century BC original audience of Isaiah... We know exactly how that reversal takes place through Jesus, the light of the world. Where was Jesus born? Or where did he actually grow up, I should say? He born in Bethlehem. Where did he grow up? In Galilee. Where did he first preach the gospel? Where did he first do his public miracles of healing? In Galilee. In the area that's being described by Naphtali and Zebulun. So the first audience that took the, uh, the consequences of Ahaz's faithlessness is the very same audience that first receives the glory of God incarnate.
0: <clears throat>
1: How cool is that? What does that speak to us in our suffering? And really what's going on here, when Jesus led world, was born and raised in Galilee, Frederick Buechner calls this a, the wild and joy-drunk proclamation of Christmas, that's what Christmas is about. <laughs> it's a wild and joy-drunk proclamation. You can't out-sin God's grace. You can't out-mess up his fixability. ability, if that makes sense. <laughs> so these tribes and territories are the first to experience Jesus' great light, Isaiah 9-2. And there's this internal darkness of fear and uncertainty, this blindness about ourselves, this blindness about others, and about where we're going and about why we're going there, and this sometime terror about not being able to find the light switch of life. We all feel this. Jesus was born into that darkness of the world to cast that darkness out. And then there's the external darkness described by verses 3 through 5, splintery, shoulder-grinding press of being treated like a beast of burden, being under the yoke or staff or rod of another human being, the impersonal tramping of warriors' battle boots, the blood-covered clothing and that make slavery and oppression preferable to death. That's what's being described in these verses. And in the words of Beekner again, all heaven broke loose. The darkness shattered like glass. The glory flooded through the light with the light of a thousand suns. The world was never the same again. Whole lives were charged with new significance. The whole course of history was changed. That is a fact as hard and blunt as any fact. And that's the fact that isn't a person Jesus and by his ministry to those very places. And to our lives. But how? Why? How can, what can deal with the world's darkness? What can deal with the world's anguish? What can deal with my failures? What can deal with our pride? We see the explanation build into a crescendo. Verses 3 through 6. If you notice the beginning of the... 4, 4, 4. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. To quote a song, another song, not the Messiah, a song from *The Wizard of Oz*, because or for because because of all the wonderful things he does. Okay, that's exactly what's going on in this passage. Okay, the wonderful things that this child, the God-Man Jesus, does is told in in this really cool ancient Near Eastern ceremony. Okay, this King of Kings is described by his titles as he ascends the universal throne. This is what they did in the ancient Near East. So he's called the Wonderful Counselor. Jesus will return to earth, bringing wisdom without guilt or manipulation. Every judgment call he makes is the right one. Every practice he does is the best practice. He's the mighty God. Jesus is a hero. He's a warrior poet, to quote Braveheart, who doesn't just fight our battles with us. He fights our battles For us, he kicks the darkness back until it bleeds daylight. The everlasting Father, God the Father, is forever in control and unendingly unconditional in his love. Despite the darkness, he aches with us about our anguish right here, right now. He's that kind of Father forever. And then Jesus is described, the God has described, as Prince of Peace. Jesus rules spiritually now and will rule physically in the future. And his rule is and will be full of truth and justice and stability and prosperity and a kind of wholeness and new life that is stronger and braver, gladder and kinder and holier than we ever knew before, than we ever knew could have happened if we didn't know Jesus look, here's what's going on right now. Hope is rising in your throat and you're either swallowing it down or you're trying to breathe through it. And that's okay. I get that. That's a choice. I've done both. You can choose see-through-it-all cynicism and a strength that you can see and trust or you can trust in a God who's so much baby, the other part is sometimes hard to see not sure what the fireworks are for, but I'm almost on my sermon, so um, hurrah. Okay, look, I'll let me end with this. In his medical practice, and much more in his life-ending cancer, Paul Kalanithi realized that his, decision, his decisions dealt with persons instead of problems to be solved. And he struggled with the future, right? He struggled actively out loud with that life's a deck that is stacked and you're going to lose and that your hands or your judgment are going to slip. And yet you will still struggle to win for your patience sake. And so really this is what he's saying. This is how our personal decisions feel. This is how inevitable our failure is going to be. But I think these kind of realisms led Paul to write this. Yet I return to the central values of Christianity. Sacrifice, redemption, forgiveness, because I found them so compelling. There is a tension in the Bible between justice and mercy. And the New Testament says you can never be good enough. Goodness is the thing, and you can never live up to it. And the main message of Jesus is that mercy trumps justice every time. That is, we need Jesus not just to be good, not just to make good decisions. We need Jesus' mercy to forgive us about our failures and to right the wrongs around us. Every time. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time, thanks for this passage, which is tense. But good, And I pray that that future hope, that vision of a a ruler ascending and putting things the way they're supposed to be would would move our hearts, that as everything feels like it's in flux and everything feels so difficult and hard and decisions feel so weighty and important, (coughs) I pray that you give us the wisdom we need to make them, that we trust in your words and who you are, even as a baby, but also, Lord, that you would really help us to trust in the future that there's going to be a child, that you have been born, and you will come back again, and you will make many of these verses a reality that's more beautiful than we could even possibly believe. Thank you, Jesus, for your surprise. Thank you for your love. In your name we pray. Amen.